All right, everybody, welcome back to the Eternal Leadership Podcast. And uh, today we have a high speed, low drag kind of program today because we have on Dave Alpern from the Joe Gibbs Racing Team. Dave, welcome to the podcast. John, thank you for having me. I like that little sizzle intro. That was very appropriate. <laughs> yeah, you feel yeah. the need. I did. Okay. Speed. You've been waiting to use that and you got it out right in the open. I've been waiting to use that because, you know, it's kind of hard to incorporate that into, you know, many episodes, but man, how, how many, well, just as a side note, cause it just popped into my head. Yeah. What's the horsepower of the cars you guys are running? I, I was told there would be no math, you know, again, that they changed some of the engine rules. And so we do race different engine packages sometimes it's 750 sometimes it's 550 so they've got some horsepower they're big cars though they weigh you know 3500 pounds but uh they've got some giddy up and go let's just say that but i am not the technical guy i can barely change my own oil so please no more no more technical questions you're my, my no more technical questions and we just started <laughs> i'm a fan of uh horsepower but so okay. guys here's a little bit about dave and i'm excited because we're going to be talking about uh something that's really become a passion of Dave's, but uh, Dave, you're the president of Joe Gibbs Racing. If some of you guys know Joe Gibbs, he was the head coach of the Washington Redskins. Uh, he's had an incredible career, but he started Joe Gibbs Racing in back in 1993. Uh, so you were young because uh, you and I are, are close to the same age. You were this unpaid intern, and then you slowly just started rising and rising and rising, right? The company went from 18 employees to over 500 employees. You are now the president of uh, Joe Gibbs Racing. You're working with all these incredible brands, Toyota, FedEx, Mars, Black & Decker, uh, married to your college sweetheart, Stacy. You got three boys. I have three boys also, which is nice. awesome. And uh, we're going to be talking about you know, we don't do a lot of like books and book reviews, but what I really liked about what you wrote and what's coming out, it's called Taking the Lead, Winning Business Principles That Fuel Joe Gibbs Racing. And everything in here is so in alignment, Dave, with what we do, what we teach, what we talk about uh, here on the uh, podcast. So just Real quickly, before we get into some of these principles and kind of how all this came together, Dave, I'd love to hear you kind of tell your story and your journey in your own words. Well, I'll, uh, there are several versions. I will give the abbreviated one, but thank you. Yeah. So grew up outside of D.C. And uh, interestingly, in D.C., nobody, nobody agrees on anything except when the football team is good, they agree on that. That is what rallies everybody together. And, and Joe Gibbs in the late 80s and the early 90s was literally the, I would say, the most popular figure in Washington because he, he was responsible for taking to the beloved football team to four Super Bowls. So I grew up in that atmosphere and, and my best friend in middle school and high school happened to be Joe's oldest son, J.D. Gibbs. So I got to see it kind of firsthand. Yeah. And so my story, again, without getting into too much detail, I was, you know, Smallest kid in my high school, late bloomer. I wrestle with uh, something called Tourette syndrome, and, and I talk about that in the book. It's really the first time I've ever talked about it, and part of it is because I've, I've learned now in leadership that everyone we interact with every day is dealing with some sort of a, whether it's a mental illness, a physical disability, and that is part of their story, and it's important for us to know that and understand that and to talk about it. So, you know, I was kind of this, you know, like I said, small kid with very low self-confidence and high, smallest kid in a high school of 3000 kids I actually got stuffed in a trash can, just like you'd see on a movie. My first week of school contrast that with JD Gibbs, the great looking popular dad is the coach of the football team started on our varsity football team as a sophomore for all three, you know, to the last three years and how in the world would JD and I become friends? Well, JD was, this larger than life guy who understood early the power of influence and JD would go in the cafeteria and sit with different random tables. And he'd just plop down and he'd say, Hey, I'm JD as if they didn't know who he was. And he would ask them about them. And it's because he was aware of the influence that he had. And that was the kind of guy JD was. And the reason I know he did that is because he did that with me and I know how it made me feel. And JD and I became friends and uh, we went off to different colleges 
and JD played football for William and Mary. I went to George Mason up in Northern Virginia. Ironically, I started as an electrical engineering major because my dad was an electrical engineer. And a quick story on my dad. My dad worked for the CIA, spoke multiple languages. I was born in Frankfurt, Germany. One of my sisters was born in Bangkok, Thailand. My dad traveled all over the world. I didn't know where he worked until I was 16 when he retired from the agency. And I kind of went, oh, well, that explains a lot, you know, after he told me. And my parents had divorced and it was a rough, I mean, he was an operative. It was a rough lifestyle. But I had two sisters, but as his only son, the God in my house growing up was achievement. You need Mm -hmm. to get into a good college, get a good job. And so I had this pressure as the only male son, you know, the only male in the family to follow in my rock star dad's footsteps. And so, and I never felt like I was living up to it again. I was undersized in sports. I was just never felt smart enough or what have you. And so I ended up going to my fourth choice of college I started as an electrical engineering major. I knew a week into it, I'd made a mistake. I didn't like math or science, which is kind of- Well, that's not good for- I was a double E myself. Had uh, I taken a 10-minute personality profile, I would have known I'll be a horrible engineer. So all that to say, I I went to college. First year was the worst year of my life. Then I changed my major. Then I got connected to- um, Again, and there's a lot to unpack here, so I probably need to focus more on the occupation side. But I will say, I, so I met my I met my wife in college, and we dated all through college. So college ended up being a wonderful experience for me. When I finished college, I did not know what I wanted to do. JD was still playing football; he was on the five-year plan, and coach started this NASCAR team and really needed cheap labor. He was still coaching the football team and needed someone to run stuff between the new shop in Charlotte, North Carolina and RFK Stadium. And JD asked me, he said, hey, will you, hey, before you go do whatever you're going to do for a living, can you spend six months helping out? And I thought, so look great on my resume. I'll get to work for Coach Gibbs. And I remember when JD asked me, I did think to myself, JD's got a million friends. He could have asked anybody, but he asked me. And that was really one of the big boosts in self-confidence of my life, of this big stamp of approval. Did you ever ask him why he asked you? I did later. And he knew, he just said, I knew I could count on you. And it was part of, I guess it was a loyalty thing. He knew, you know, you know, little did I know my friendship was auditioning me for a job, but he was watching the way I did things. And he just, he knew he could count on me and granted, granted what they were asking of me was not, you know, it wasn't rocket science, but uh, they needed someone reliable. And so that's really how it started. And then that led to them inviting me to come live in Charlotte and work for the team. And even then, they didn't have a budget to pay me. And so I slept on, you know, JD had an apartment with another guy. I slept on their floor for several months. I didn't even have a room in the apartment. They didn't have a place to put me in the garage where they built the cars. So they emptied out a closet, a, an actual broom closet. Now you had graduated college at this point, right? Oh, I'm a, I'm almost a year out of college. And so, and, yeah. so and, and you met <laughs> Stacy in college. Yes. Okay, so you're dating the love of your life and you're sleeping on the floor of your buddy's house. What was the reason that you were kind of so connected at that point to what you were doing? So, first of all, I had huge motivation, and that was I wanted to get married. And my wife's father, Jack, who is to this day one of my spiritual heroes, was very firm with me that you're, you're, you know, this ain't happening until you have a real job, you know. And so I was very motivated at the same time. I wanted to please my dad. And yeah, so you can imagine how proud my dad must have been when I told him, you know, I'm working in a converted broom closet, making nothing in a garage and I sleep on the floor of an apartment. I mean, it was a, it was as an unglamorous of a start as a career could possibly happen. But I had a hunch with Joe Gibbs, everything this guy touches turns to gold. And I wanted to hitch my wagon. And I had a saying, I say this a lot, the who was more important than the what. So we could have been, they could have had a business selling coat hangers. And for me, that did, that was secondary. JD was my peer, sort of my, he was probably the most influential peer in my life. And Joe was probably the most influential adult mentor in my life. So if I had the opportunity to work with those two guys, I didn't care what we were doing or what I was doing. Well, I, I love that, Dave, the who is more important than the what. And I think, you know, it's just a takeaway if if folks are listening. It's not only who you work with, who you work for, but also who's in your life. I think that is one of the the most important things that we can focus on. Honestly, if we get the who right, 
Absolutely. All these other things that everybody else gets all wrapped up around the what, the why, and the how. Right. Honestly, they take care of themselves when who, well, for, you know, who you are as yourself, right? Are you becoming the best version of yourself? And are you spending time with people that are, have done that themselves and are, and are challenging you, helping you, encouraging you to become the, uh, that for you? So um, love that you shared that, man, because I think that is just something a lot of us lose track of sometimes. Yeah, again, so for me, I, I was getting to be around these heroes of mine, but it was definitely difficult to look around and think, gosh, I, I really am a failure. But again, I just had a feeling. And so it started that way. And, and for the first year, I was just trying to earn my keep and, and coming up with different ways to, and there, the whole, there's a whole section in the book called deliver more than you cost. And the idea is if you want to make yourself indispensable in your company, just deliver more value than you're paid. And that was sort of, again, when you're an unpaid intern, it's a fairly low bar. Um, <laughs> That's a good I, point. And they're all things though, that are a choice that we forget. And so I, and I detail in the book, some of the different things that I did, but the theme of Again, very simple things. Never say that's not my job. Be great at little things. And let me tell you, everything I was doing <clears throat> was a little thing. And you can complain about it and you can think, gosh, I wish I was in that office over there. I wish I had this job. Or you can just be great right where you are. And so in the early days, that's really kind of how it started. And I thought, honestly, I thought we'd have 18 employees forever. And this is what NASCAR would look like. And then as the years went on, we began to grow and we went from one driver and one team to two drivers to three to now we have the maximum you're allowed in NASCAR, which is four. We have four teams competing against each other, 500 employees, and it's been crazy to watch the growth. And I kind of walk through that as I walk through the book and what I learned working alongside a two sport Hall of Famer who is, <laughs> you know, just this has this relentless work ethic. And I kind of talk about that some of the key traits that make him tick and that I think have given us an advantage along the way. It's been a crazy, crazy ride for sure. Oh, I bet. Now under deliver more than you cost, yeah. one of the things you talk about is being a compliment and not a clone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you say compliment, what kind of compliment is that? Complimenting the team. And so often we come in and we just think, we look at someone and we go, I want to be a clone or I want to be a yes person, or I want to do it. I want to be like that person over there. So I'm just going to fake it and be what I think they want me to be. Instead of saying, you look, we were all wired. We all have personality traits, you know, whether you take your personality profile, whether it's Myers-Briggs or an Enneagram or whatever, that is who you are. And that's how embrace that. And when you sprinkle together like a recipe, these different ingredients, these different personalities and these different aptitudes, that's what makes great teams. And, and I see young people often think, well, I'm going to fit into this mold or that mold. Be you. God only made one of you. And so I, when I came into this work environment, we actually, it was very obvious that we all did have different styles and different aptitudes. And in a conversation, I would think of things from a completely different perspective than Joe and JD and some of the other leaders. And I found out quickly, not only was that okay, that was a great thing. That's where I added value. Because if I was just saying and repeating and regurgitating what everyone else was saying in the, in the meeting, they didn't need me. So embrace your uniqueness and be a compliment to your team, not a clone of your team. And I think that's just one of the things I unpack a little bit more in the book is that oftentimes we feel like we've got to fit a mold of what our company wants to, or what someone says we are, instead of just being your unique you, that's why you're on the team in the first place. Here's something that's coming to mind. I, I'm just kind of picturing you as an intern, right? And honestly, <laughs> those of us that have had like those free interns or unpaid internships and you're trying yeah. to justify them giving you a salary, yeah. you got to be all in. And Absolutely. it sounds like you've been all in this whole time, but JD, who's a peer who clearly is somebody you really revere and respect, yeah. right? Like, wow, this is somebody to look up to. And then you're, you know, you're working with the coach of the Redskins, somebody who like, yeah. like the, one of the few people in DC, especially if they're winning is actually like, Yes. How was it, Dave? And when you started moving into your first leadership roles inside of Joe Gibbs, did you find your own voice? Because I could see you in a room of opinions of people that have very, you know, just have such a, a track record of making good decisions, having strong opinions. But now you're stepping like you just talked yeah. about, right? You don't want to just be this clone going, oh, hey, great idea. Great idea. Great idea. 
what was it that allowed you to kind of step into who you were as a leader? Well, I think it was a couple of things. I think Joe fosters an environment of that. And, and think about a think about a coaching environment. Coaches, they get in a room, they sit around a table and they just hash things out all night. Joe, Joe very much leads that way. He likes his assistant coaches, so to speak, to be sitting around the table and to go around and get opinions. But one of the things that sort of developed a trait in mine, it wasn't intentional over time, was because I was always surrounded with people in my opinion, that were smarter than me, which by the way, is also a good leadership trait. Surround yourself with people smarter than you. Many leaders don't think that way. It's not super hard for me. <laughs> but early on, what I started developing was this, I, I kind of would go into a meeting with this mindset. I am not talking until I have something significant to add. And I would just listen. And I got really good at, all right, I'm going to listen to Joe. I'm going to listen. And then I would carefully add my input. And what ended up happening, and again, I didn't do this on purpose, when I talked, people really paid attention because they know, all right, hold on, Dave's talking. And, and let me get something clear. I am an extrovert. I love talking. So it's not that I was uncomfortable, but in, in sometimes in the business settings, I was a little bit uncomfortable. And I wanted to make sure I was never that guy that just likes to hear himself talk in a meeting where people roll their eyes and they're like, would you just be quiet? You know, I'm going to be the opposite. And when I talk, hopefully people are going to go, hold on, hold on, hold on. Dave's got something to say. This is going to be good. You know, again, I'm, I'm sort of exaggerating a little bit, but that's a byproduct of when I'm in a room with Joe Gibbs, I don't want to talk. I want to listen to him. <laughs> when I'm in a room with JD, I wanted to hear JD talk. And so over time, it got to where they would naturally say, hey, Dave, you haven't talked much. I want to hear, you know, hey, put a bow on this conversation at the end. I want to hear, you know, where, where you stand. And so part of it is, I think that became my own leadership style. And, and, you know, I talk about in the book a lot about how there are different leadership styles and coach Gibbs is what I would describe as the alpha leader. And that's that person that when they walk in the room, they're not only in charge, they want to be in charge. They want to be the one making the decisions. All eyes go on that person. And that is not me at all. I have more of a reluctant leadership style. And one of the reasons I wanted to write a book is because I wanted people to know Maybe you aren't the alpha leader either. That's okay. You can be a phenomenal leader. And as we talked about before with personality profiles and aptitude, it doesn't matter which one you have, you can be a great leader with the way, the way that God wired you. It took me a long time to think of myself as a leader. Again, I was like, I talk the least in meetings. You know, I started in a broom closet. I'm not a leader, but leadership has nothing to do with your title. And I learned it has to do with influence and it has to do with, you know, how you're impacting others around you and that you can have different leadership styles. And so interestingly, my book really contrasts that alpha leader, which is Joe. I mean, I work for probably the ultimate alpha leader and I have a great deal of admiration for people with that personality profile because it is very different than mine, but at the same time, mine being very different. And I will say this, if I was an alpha leader, coach and I probably would have killed each other a long time ago, but because we were complementary of each other in our styles, that's what made it work is he would look for my perspective because often he's ready to charge one way. And I'm look, I'm kind of the feeler of the group and he'd look at me, Hey, how's this going to affect our people? What are people going to think of this? And, and I would bring in a different perspective again, not a better one or a worse one, just a different one. And I think that that's something that I learned over time, but it, it started with being in a room with these really smart people that I admired. I just didn't want to talk a whole lot. I wanted to listen. And I think that taught me a good lesson in becoming a leader is learning to listen really good. You know, so that was part of it. Well, I love that. And, you know, I think there's a lot of people out there like what you just described and they, they related to that term reluctant leader, either they don't feel either prepared or equipped or, uh, you know, they were really doing well in their role and all of a sudden yeah. they get recognized and you get promoted now to maybe be a team lead or a director or a manager of some sort. You're like, oh, my goodness, I, I'm really good at software programming. I'm really good at, you know, doing whatever the job you were doing. But now you're moved into a leadership role. And what, what, you're, what I heard you're saying is, right, you had developed a really good sense of self-awareness. I think understanding your weaknesses, your strengths, and I really hope people heard, you really heard what Dave said is some of these different leadership styles and brands that, you know, the way we think of leadership, there is not a right and a wrong. It's, you know what, there's a difference and it's in that difference 
is where we can actually find places to have the most influence. So you're right. Like Dave, you probably described a lot of, you know, when you're talking about Joe, a lot of the leaders that many of us have worked right. for. Right. Right. And then um, now here's a question is your, is your, is your moving in? Cause this is your second principle and it's all about creating this winning culture. And I know coming from a fighter squadron, and the, you know, and what I've tried to build or be, a, you know, teams I've been a part of is creating that winning culture. I mean, if you guys aren't winning consistently, then, you know, well, it's like any company. If we're not winning, we're not growing, we're not attracting right. great people, we're not keeping them. What are some things that you found work to influence and, and shape culture as that reluctant leader as you've come up through this, you know, whole process from unpaid intern to CEO? Well, Joe says all the time, you don't win with tricks or parts and pieces, you win with people. So your culture starts with the people that you pick and figuring out what type of person am I looking for and going after those. And, and so we talk about, you know, at, Joe, at JGR, there's, we, we talk about fitting the Joe mold. What is the Joe mold? And it was the same for players as it was for people with the race team. And it would surprise you. So if you ask coach, who were some of your favorite players back in your football days? It would surprise you some of the names he'd give you. He'd give you, you know, he, he's going to give you some of the stars, but he's going to give you a name like Otis Wansley. And you're going to go, who the heck was Otis Wansley? And what Joe would say is, you know, for example, how do I find people that fit the Joe mold? He would talk often about watching game film from late in the fourth quarter of a game where they were either up by 20 points or down by 20 points, meaning the game's over and you think, why are you watching game film from then? He said, I'm going to watch special teams because here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that guy who is going 100% trying to knock somebody's head off when the game's already decided. That's the guy I want in my bunker. That's the guy. And so when you talk about fitting the Joe mold, it's character first, it's heart second. You know how? So first, what kind of a human being is this person? Number two, heart. How much does this person care? In other words, are they the type of person who's going to be a clock puncher or are they the type of person that's going to really be passionate about our mission and wake up and go to bed thinking about it? And then third is talent. So third's important, but talent isn't the number one thing. And that sort of surprises people. So part of building a culture is finding people that fit that mold, you know, high character people, people that are going to buy into our mission. And we're, we can talk a little bit about mission and how important it's been for us to stay on mission. And so I think that's part of it. And again, coach has a phrase of, you know, he, he's looking for butt busters. And again, by butt busters, he just wants people who are all in people who care as much about the mission here as he does. Now, from a leadership standpoint, what we found is the important part of keeping uh, of building culture is putting people before profits. That is very counterintuitive. That's very counterintuitive for most businesses. What we've learned is when you put more attention on your people, your people put more attention on your mission. When you care about them, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because they care more about the mission and they're more bought in when you care about them first. And so again, it's all of those things are easy to say, they're difficult to do. And one of the things that's been really hard is to maintain that sort of family feel, that family culture going from an 18 person company to a 500 person company. And I have a whole chapter called going from family business to factory, where all of a sudden we felt more like a factory. When, when you have 18, 20, 30 people, it's much easier to do what we're talking about because you have direct you know, interaction. Yeah, a team meeting is like, hey, everybody, I hey, got pizza. Everybody to come to the lunchroom. Yeah. We're going to have yeah. a chat. Now our Christmas party when people bring spouses is eight or 900 people. It's insane. So, you you know, it's very hard to do that. So how do you, and, and people listening probably with companies with thousands of people, it's very difficult to do that, but it does start with leadership. It starts with being bought into a, you know, what is the mission of your company? We'll talk about that here also, but it talks about finding, you know, really finding the right people and understanding and communicating the why, which again, we can also talk about, but uh, getting people to buy into culture. I mean, that's what it is. And with a sports organization, it's probably the most important thing we do. And you said uh, in, in, when you're talking about culture too, it's all about honoring God first and foremost. And David, you know, people out there right now, because you've been able to do that in your team, in your culture, and from your perspective, you know, leading the organization, what advice would you have to people 
listening, saying, okay, how do I not only maybe identify the, the right people, but do it in a way that really honors God first and foremost in everything we do, whether it's a overtly faith-based company or not, or maybe there's a distinction there. Well, it's interesting. I, 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 if somebody asks, hey, leading a Christian company, what's the most important thing I should know? The answer probably would surprise them that I would give, and that is, number one, be really good at what you do. I have a saying, nobody cares what you think if you stink. So, you know, it's, I think it's a biblical mandate to, to do everything we do to honor the Lord, you know, whatever we do, whatever in word or in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord. And so we, God wants us to go all in with what we're doing and be really good, be the best accountant you can be, be you know, be well, I agree. Best. You know, it gives, you know, it gives us the ability to influence others in the marketplace and that's excellence. A hundred percent. Who's you know what? If I'm a racer and you're the guy who just shows up late, you're not disciplined, 100%. you don't work out, but you want to witness to me, I'm going to be like, I don't want to know what you know. Sorry. A hundred percent. And that I mean, again, it, and that is in any business. If you're if you're dogging it at work and you're you're that person gossiping, or you know, you you take your pick. If you're not excellent, nobody cares your opinion. You're going to have zero influence, and you're going to have a really hard time being a good leader. So it starts with being really good, which is why. We go back to staying on mission. What's our mission to be the best race team we can be? Now, going back to your question, then I think it's just a matter of when you talk about leadership, to me, the two most important traits of a leader are character and authenticity. So that's part of it. It's demonstrating your character and being authentic as a leader is one of the ways you honor God first and foremost. Don't be fake. Again, treat people like a soul and not a transaction, which is what we're, we're going to talk about probably later. That's later in the book. It's, again, treating everybody, putting people before profits. One of the things we do, and I realize not every company probably does this, you know, every Monday morning, but we have a group of leadership that goes into Joe's office first thing Monday morning, and we pray. We start, we, today's Monday. We just did it this morning. We used to pray by name for every employee. Now that would take most of our morning, so we kind of break it into different issues. Um, we have a team of chaplains who often will bring back prayer lists of, hey, this person wants to, and it's all you know, sometimes it's anonymous or whatever, and we mm -hmm. don't publicize that. We don't do it to beat our chests. We do it because we know if we're going to run a godly organization, we've got to lay our requests before the Lord and ask him to bless our week. There are things that are going to face us that we, you know, aren't going to be able to handle on our own. So if you're not in an organization where that's maybe organized, maybe there's a coworker or two or something that you can do that on your own. But I think that's been one of the keys to to our company is just really setting our minds at the beginning of the week that we're going to lay this week before the Lord. We're going to lay up certain prayer requests. And so again, it's a number of things. There isn't one magic answer. Those are some examples. Again, I think we have chaplains on hand that are there to when somebody, you know, has a tragedy in their family or someone passes away or someone needs marriage help. We want to be there to be a resource to show them we care about you. We actually care about you more than we care about making money or profits. And that is part, in my opinion, of honoring God first and foremost. It's where are we giving our money? Are we, are we donating? Are we supporting? And we, we support 70 or 80 different ministries around the world. And we have them come in and share with our employees, hey, here's where your money, uh, here's what your money's doing around the world and whatever it is, different ministry that we run. And so there is a number of different things that we try to do as a faith-based organization to really demonstrate that, you know, hey, we can't do this apart from the direct intervention of God. And we want this to be an environment where people are valued and held to a real high esteem. Well, thank you for sharing that. And, you know, one of the uh, one of the things you just said that's so exciting is partnering with other charities, bringing them in, sharing them with your people, because when people show up to a place to work, right, it's a racing team. And I have a certain job to do, but when I can link my own purpose as a person to the mission of the organization, but also see the good that that organization is doing outside, right? It's not just racing, right? This creates this ability to give and to bless. And when you can involve your people in those things or just that are outside the walls of the business, oh my goodness, you got a place where people develop friendships, you're praying for people, you have chaplains. So, I mean, who here listening would be like, put their hand up going, Hey, Dave, you, uh, you know, you got any job openings? <laughs> well, let me do the flip side though. If I'm honest, it's still difficult. And there are folks, you know, right now we're in the grind of kind of summer where we're in a tough part of the schedule. 
and it's pretty brutal. So it's not, it definitely isn't happy, happy, fun time all the time. And we are in, as everybody's business is, you know, it's, it's like a knockdown drag out every day in many ways, but yeah, that is a small thing. We have a Bible study, a chapel service every Wednesday and we provide free lunch and a lot of people just come for the lunch and that's okay. And that's the venue where we bring in guest speakers that are often from those ministries that we support. And, and again, it is important because you want to say, Hey, this, this work that you're doing that often feels like a grind besides these trophies that we're winning, which actually are going to rot in a corner and get dust. <laughs> it's actually providing us the ability to support, you know, this person who's going to come in and share about their ministry to the homeless or this person who's in Africa putting shoes on people's feet that don't have any or, or whatever the, again, take your pick. And, and that is sort of the payday, I think, for many of us. And I will say for me, at my stage of my career, that's really my number one motivation now is my, that is my why, you know, I love winning. Obviously, again, we're called to win, but winning a race or getting a new sponsorship deal doesn't float my boat like it used to. The idea of it now is what is that doing? How is that building my platform for me to do things that really do matter? And what am I doing with it? You know, I complained much of my career about, to myself in my journal often about I'm not appreciated or I'm not in a, you know, I'm not in a position that's using all of my gifts and, uh, you know, or I'm being wasted or what have you. Well, again, little did I know God was preparing me for a job I never imagined. Well, now I have it. And now I'm around people that I used to not be around for the first 20 years of my career. So the key question is, am I using that for my own benefit or am I using it to honor God? Am I using it to influence those people? God put me on this platform in this particular sphere of influence for a reason, just like everyone listening you have a sphere of influence, whether you're at the beginning of your career and you sit in a cubicle and you don't see another human all day, or you're running your company or you're anywhere in between. All of you have a sphere of influence where people you can impact, people you can encourage. And so that's been part of my, you know, when I wake up in the morning, it's kind of my, all right, how am I going to honor the Lord today with what I'm doing? And I don't think it's just trying to win races. Again, that we're supposed to do that but the question is why, what's my why? And I think our organization tries to do a good job of saying, here's our why. And hopefully each person as an individual knows, why am I going to work every day? Why am I doing this? What am I doing with the gifts God's given me for something that's going to matter far beyond my career? Yeah. I think those are so important too, because, you know, like you were talking about, like, you know, there's times where your teams probably do really well. And, you know, the atmosphere is like, really, you know, everybody's feeling good, but then there's times when you're losing some races or you're losing some deals, or we, maybe we had some interactions with some of our folks that are part of the team that weren't the outcome that we'd hoped for. It was like, you know, people are like, wow, you know, you were a fighter pilot. That must've been amazing. What I tell people is 10% was absolutely epic. Yeah. 90% I had to grind through and put up with long hours, uncomfortable beds, six months at sea, nine months at sea one time for that 10% separation from my family. And I think it's good to recognize as believers in the marketplace that we have to show up in all of that stuff. Some of it we don't love to do with excellence so that we get to do that stuff where we're just really, you know, making God smile because the whole thing actually makes him smile. But sometimes, I don't know, as, as I'm working with some people, they think every aspect and every element of the day should be like feeling really good. And if maybe something's wrong, like, no, sometimes we have to work through difficult situations because if we don't do that, we are never going to grow and become better right? It's like, uh, I'm thinking of, you know, the parable of the vine, right? Sometimes we got to, we got to get pruned and we got to grow back so that we can bear more fruit. And some of those pruning periods are not comfortable, but it's exactly what we need to be able to, to be better and be ready for what God has planned for us in the next season. No, that's a good word. I like the 90, 10. And I mean, and there's seasons of your career that, it may be more or less than that, you know, where you're doing more things that you're really good at and you really like versus the other, but yeah, you've got to be willing, you know, to do a good share of the, <laughs> of the non-fun stuff. Honestly, sometimes I think God put me here to be a, a peacemaker and I, that is one of my traits. So there's a lot of conflict in this business, whether it's with, you know, it's, it's usually involves people, whether it's 
sponsors, drivers, people who work here. And I happen to feel like I have, you know, the gift of being a peacemaker, but it is my kryptonite. It exhausts me. And so I have to go home going, gosh, I can't deal with another conflict, but that's why God has me here. You know what I mean? So it's not what I love doing, but it is one of the reasons that I'm here and, and I've been put in this position. And, you know, we, we haven't talked about JD yet, but, you know, JD Gibbs, Joe's oldest son for 20 years was our president. And I, kind of signed up to be his chief of staff and was probably more comfortable in that role. But when, and, and, you know, when JD got sick, I became president. And when JD passed away two years ago, I had the honor of speaking at his funeral. And one of the amazing things was the most amazing service I've ever been to. It was about an hour and a half long. And what was amazing is of all the people who shared, there's one thing they didn't talk about. They didn't talk about anything that he did at work. It was all about the people that he'd influenced, the lives that were different because of JD. And what a great lesson for us in our jobs that they're not going to talk about that at the end of our life. What they're going to talk about is what you did with it. How did you influence people? And that's kind of what I'm motivated. That's really kind of was a, you know, a light bulb moment for me is, is that's, that's what matters. And I, and I, again, I had that modeled by my best friend who had a life well-lived that had nothing to do with being great at his job, although he was. And so I think for all of us, it's a great, sort of a great takeaway in whatever our job is, wherever God has us. Well, I loved how you wrote about, because my father passed away last year, you know, in writing, you know, his eulogy, you know, you talked about, you did that for your father, Mm -hmm. you know, it just feels right, right? It feels like, you know, there's, I miss my dad, but I get to honor his life in this eulogy, but doing it, and you talk about how hard it was to do this and write this for somebody who's your best friend who was taken early, you know, as you went through that period, that transition, right. And the family and the business went through that transition. What are, what are some things you learned about yourself, Dave? Gosh, there, yeah, no, there was a lot. Not, I, you know, when JD first got sick, it was so, what was so difficult was, you know, our business was you know, really, we're continuing to grow. We were probably just, you know, about to go to a fourth car, which meant adding more people, adding more sponsors, adding more stress. Um, meanwhile, JD got sick. And for a four to five year period, he would come in and almost every day with a caregiver. And, you know, each stage of his illness got more and more cruel. And you kept thinking, well, it can't get worse than this. And then it would get worse. And that just that that cycle continued for four to five years. A year into it, you know, they I started having people come into my office saying, Hey, I just want to share with you. Interestingly, it started with our head chaplain, Bob came in and sat down. And he said, I just want to tell you, tell you something the Lord put on my heart. And I'm like, well, what is it? And said, I, I just really feel like coach needs to make you president because JD's sick and he can't do this anymore. And I mean, honestly, six or seven different people over a period of about two months came into my office and said that exact thing to me. And I would literally, you know, it was like, Jonah, I'm, I'm, at, I'm, I'm like, no, la, 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 la. I don't want to listen to you. And I would go home and tell my wife, you know, they're actually talking about naming me president. And, you know, if you read my journal for 20 years, you'd say, this is what you've asked for. You know, you've wanted more responsibility. You were just the t-shirt guy for 10 years and you kind of whined about that. And then you, then you ran, you know, I ran each different department and kept thinking they really don't appreciate me. And I'm not really, again, had having no idea that this is what I was being prepared for. And so the day coach finally named me the president you know, I share in my book, it was honestly, it was one of the worst days of my life. It's crazy to say that all these people are texting me and congratulating me when we announced it. And it was honestly, for me, it was just confirmation that this was real and JD was not getting better. And that, you know, I am now the president of a family business and I'm not part of the family and this isn't how it's supposed to be. And it was really hard. And, and gosh, I learned a lot of things. I mean, I struggle with self-confidence. I think often leaders are on the other end of the spectrum and they're too overconfident. And I probably am on you know, the side of, I needed a boost. I think God was, I didn't trust right away. God's not going to put me in this position if I'm not ready. You know, he's kind of like, hello, I've been preparing you this for 20 years. You can do this is why you're doing it. And so that was. Now, if I understood you there, Dave, you said that that's not where you were coming from, right? You were getting put in that position, but you didn't feel ready or prepared. No, no, not at all. Yeah. I, I neither felt prepared for it, nor did I want it because it was my friend's job. And there was this internal struggle of if I want it, I'm betraying JD. And if I don't want it, I'm betraying Joe and the family who need me to do this. So I, it's like, I didn't know what the right answer was, or I, I wanted myself to feel a certain way, which you can't do. 
and I didn't know which way was the right way. And so everything about it seemed unnatural because of the circumstances. Also, I remember honestly, so many times just talking to my wife when JD was the president about, I don't know how JD does it. I don't know how he goes to bed at night knowing there are 500 families counting on him to make smart decisions. Boy, what pressure that must be. I am so thankful that's not me. And now all of a sudden it was like, I don't want that. You know, again, I signed up to serve JD, not to be JD. I, I don't want this job. And so, I mean, it's been, you know, upwards of six years and, and obviously it feels more natural, but there, if I'm honest, I have my moments of that, of, you know, sometimes it's in a funny way where I'll be in a crisis and I'll just mutter under my breath, darn you, JD, for leaving me with this. But often it's trying to have the balance between doing what I think JD would have done, which I think I am the most, you know, uniquely qualified to do that because I was so close to him. But at the same time, you know, coach has given me the freedom to say, you aren't JD, you're Dave and do what Dave, you know, Whatever the Lord's telling you, I'm, I'm okay with that. And so I do try to balance those things of, hey, all right, what, how would JD approach this? And, okay, well, I'm, you know, this is my area now. What do I think is the right thing? I'm equipped to make this decision. And it's been a process, but it's been trying to trust the Lord. And, to, and, and it is maybe, you know, often crisis brings you closer to the Lord. This absolutely did with me where I'm, you know, I don't want to miss my time with the Lord in the morning because I, <laughs> I'm desperate for his wisdom. I'm desperate, mm -hmm. desperate for his discernment to make these impossible decisions. And, and again, I don't try to make it sound like we're, you know, I tell sometimes our guys, we're not building bridges or curing cancer. We're racing cars for entertainment. Let's not take our ourselves too seriously, but Hey, for us, it is life and death. I mean, we have big, the stakes are high. We've got big time corporate sponsors counting on us to make good decisions. We got 500 families. So there's a lot of pressure. And as a feeler, it's harder for me than some people. And so, yeah, I, I really have learned to give my leadership to the Lord to say, I need wisdom throughout this day. I've got a meeting I need. Help me to be firm yet gentle. Help me to treat this person like a soul. You know, all those things that I feel like I'm incapable of myself that maybe when I was earlier in my career doing something that was second nature, I didn't really need to rely on the Lord because I could do it. I could go into a meeting and talk about how to print a t-shirt or, you know, whatever it was. But this, this is heavy, big stuff that every day I'm dependent on and we're dependent on the Lord to guide us in this thing. Cause it's, it's, you know, it often just feels like, wow, this is impossible. Well, Dave, Thank you for your vulnerability there. I know, like I'm thinking of three or four of clients that I'm working with right now, friends that are, I, we have a Bible study. It's, we call it our band of brothers. You, you mentioned that it. earlier, right? Uh, we're all business owners, CEOs, and we're going through life. And you just described exactly how many of the guys feel right now with everything going on, the responsibility for their employees in this economy with what God's doing and everybody out there. Uh, Cause we don't have time to go everything. Dave, maybe we can have you back on the other principles are staying on mission. Yeah. Treat people as souls, not transactions, and then how to win at life. This would be such a great book for y'all to uh, we love reading books as a team to bring in, read with your team, have Dave come in speak to your group. And maybe we could do this as we kind of wrap up, Dave, is think about what you just shared, knowing that there's probably a significant percentage of folks listening right now that like, wow, thank you for sharing that, Dave, because you just described where I'm at. And, uh, you know, as you're about to walk into a meeting you, you were sharing about before we hit record with the entire team to review everything that happened over the last week. And, you guys weren't exactly where you need to be. And hey, we have to right. get better. We got to make some changes, right? There's big decisions that are going that you have to walk into and make and handle even this afternoon when we're done recording. Right. You know, so what advice or counsel would you give some of those folks listening that are in that same spot? Gosh, there's a lot. You know, the chapter where I talk about win at life to me is one of the most important things. And it's really hard. It's number one invest most in who matters most in your life. And that, and oftentimes we, we you know, if you, I, I draw circles, you know, with the inner circle being the people closest to you and then, and so on and so forth, as you go out to acquaintances and often, you know, we lose most of our time, which is our most valuable commodity to the people on the outer circles and not the ones on the inner circle. And so that's so important. I would also say 
desperately try to have some work-life balance because you're not going to be, I had a, a very wise mentor of mine who's actually, I talk about in the book, tell me once to be the best president at Joe Gibbs Racing, you first got to be the best man of God, the best husband, the best father you can be. And that's counterintuitive in today's society. So having work-life balance, which is easy to talk about and hard to do, I talk about that a lot in the book. You have to be desperately intentional with your schedule. And depending on, you may be discouraged because you're in a phase of life where, I mean, you may be a medical student. Hey, your, your work-life balance isn't going to look the same in this season of life, admittedly, as it might later or for someone else. And that's okay. Pick your small, it, it may be taking small times to go take a walk or do things that are going to make you healthy, but you have got to start with you, which is, you know, what makes me tick? How do I keep my body healthy, my family healthy? What are ways I can energize myself so that when you do enter your work, you, you are the best person you can be, because if it's all skewed towards work, it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's just not going to happen. And, and I, again, I learned that from JD who had this unique way of putting life into perspective and not taking himself too seriously at work, being great at what he did, but being even better away from work. So again, particularly um, that is something that I'm very passionate about and it is really, really, really hard to do. I would also say, don't beat yourself up again for people who are perfectionists. It's easy to think, man, I'm, I stink at everything right now. I'm just scattered. I'm whatever. Hey, control what you can control. Again, I talk about a lot about just take care of the little things uh, as best you can. And don't beat yourself up too much. Trust me, from somebody who's constantly beating himself up and has lived with imposter syndrome his entire career, oftentimes, hey, control what you can control. Give it over to the Lord. Again, God bless me with a great wife. I, I understand there's a lot of single folks out there that don't have that and find somebody that you can confide in or get, whether it's a mentor or a peer. I have all of those. And I have an amazing wife who literally has been my sounding board and don't be afraid to share. Don't be afraid to be vulnerable with those people, because if people don't know what you're dealing with and don't know how to pray for you or support you, you're going to handle it all on your own. And that is, it's more weight than I can handle. And I, and I think it is for most people. Yeah. So what I heard was, and it's so parallels, I think my experience in some of those challenging situations is a really focusing on, you know, that time abiding in the word, understanding who God is and my relationship to him. The second thing that really helped me was understanding who the person I saw in the mirror was and what is the difference between that person and the person God sees when he looks at me, because oftentimes there is this huge gap. And I've always worked with the Lord and mentors to close that gap. And when I just got a little bit closer to who God see, who he created me to be, a lot of these more challenging situations just seem to work out. But also you mentioned that, you know, having those, how many of us, especially the men listening out there, have two or three like relationships in your life where you could be as vulnerable as possible, like that thing that maybe might just trigger fear of their reaction, guilt, shame, doubt as a leader, bad decision, but you have people, do you have people you can go to and have these conversations that are also following Christ? And I got to tell you, Dave, some of the, the mentors and the relationships in my life, you know, putting these together creates that foundation that has gotten me through some incredible challenges. Like I was in the hospital for two years, had to rebuild my entire life. And then we had a contract pulled two years ago. It was going to transform this company and all the, it was a government contract and all the money for this uh, went, got diverted to go build the wall. Hmm. And it was just canceled like last minute. And we had everything lined up, our calendar booked out, all of our people scheduled and it's gone. This was the end of 2019. And then we had to re completely rebuild. I mean, I had to, you know, pay bills and buy groceries and then uh, the pandemic hits. Right. I mean, so life is this constant journey of up and downs, but I've gotten to a place now where the last, honestly, two years of my life going through this, I don't think I've had a bad night's sleep. Yeah. And that is a testament to what God has done in my life and who I've become in this journey in partnership with him. And, you know, have all the decisions we've made been awesome? Eh, no, 
But guess what? Each decision, though, we look at, hey, what did we do well in making that decision? How did we make that decision? What was the outcome? What did we learn from that? And in doing that, is there anything we can take from that? So next time we get a little bit gooder. And I think by looking at it from this process that it wasn't that, hey, that decision was evidence of whether, like you talked about imposter syndrome, that I'm a good leader or not. No, the outcome is this is essential for me to to make a decision and then act so that I can then learn from it and then repeat the process. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you sharing that with me. And, you know, I have a saying that my wife says it often, and even when it's easy, life's hard. And mm-hmm. so uh, you've been through, you know, obviously it sounds like, you know, more than most. And I know for me, as you get older, one of the few good things about getting older is that as God has demonstrates his faithfulness to you time and time again, it makes those tough times later in life a little more palatable because you've seen it. You've seen God's faithfulness and you, you sort of learn and get the discipline of, all right, Lord, <laughs> we've been here before. I got no shot at this. I need wisdom. I, I'm just giving this to you right now. I got nothing. You know, I really do have nothing. And those are the times I think as leaders, we're at our best. I mean, when we go in there, you know, we're thinking we're wearing a cape. I, I don't know. I think we can get in trouble. And I think often when we say, God, I got nothing. I need you on this one. Give me the words. He will. And often, and again, one of the huge lessons of my career was, look, I'm a planner. I like to I like to, I'm strategic. I like to think out. And so it drives me nuts when something's unresolved. And so if I could have just fast forwarded in my book of life to say, let me just look at the next chapter. Let me look at the end. Then I'll be good here. Well, that's not the way it works. Often when we get later in life, we look back and we go, oh, now that makes sense. And so oftentimes the best thing to remember is just, look, I don't get to look at the next page or the next chapter I got today. And today, Lord, I need you. (laughs) I need wisdom. Let's get through today. And then I trust you for tomorrow. And again, hard lesson for leaders, particularly guys that want to take charge and do everything themselves. Yeah. With that, Dave, what a great way to end. Cause you know, that is a perspective, you know, coming from somebody who's running a 500 person company with everything you have going on and that's your focus. And that is a powerful place. And uh, buddy, thank you for your time. Thank you for writing this book and uh, love to have you back on anytime. Seriously, just have really enjoyed talking with you, man. Go knock them alive out there, my friend. (laughs) Well, yeah, you hit me up. I would love to get back again. Really honored to be on and uh, excited for the book to come out. So yeah, takingtheleadbook.com. Check it out. Thanks again for having me on. Oh yeah, good point. Okay, so it's uh, the name of the book again and where can they find it, Dave? So it's Taking the Lead book. It's Taking the Lead. You can find it anywhere. We have a little takingtheleadbook.com where if you go on there, you can check out. There's uh, some pretty cool endorsements. I was really grateful to have, whether it's, some NASCAR drivers, some uh, executives from the corporate world, some folks in ministry. And then you can, there's a link there to order it from whatever your favorite retailer is, whether it's Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Lifeway or what have you. So be very grateful. And I will add all of my author proceeds, the portion that would have been paid to me is being donated to the JD Gibbs Legacy Fund, which actually funds urban ministry here in Charlotte, North Carolina in honor of my buddy JD. So I can shamelessly plug it because it is a, my portion is going to a great cause. It's benefiting those kids. That's awesome. All right, guys, get that book and all the links for everything. Everything uh, Dave talked about are in the show notes for this episode on the website. And uh, we will talk to you all soon. 